Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. In this show, we highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peterson Toscano. Welcome to episode 29 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Saturday, October 27th, 2018. For today's episode, I'm going to play around with our usual structure. I will begin and end with the puzzler question. Last month's puzzler is an important one to answer. In response to you mentioning climate change, your friend Tabitha asks, what does climate change mean for you? We will hear two of your answers, and then I will tell you my own climate story. And on the theme of stories, later in the program, joining me in the art house, Elizabeth Rush talks about climate fiction, or cli-fi. She's the author of the critically acclaimed book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. While she writes poetry and nonfiction, she recently taught a class about cli-fi. She will tell us about the genre and even give us a reading list. It was in speaking with Elizabeth Rush that I thought about the puzzler question we are considering this episode. What does climate change mean to you? The question does not lead us to uncovering the facts of climate change. It is about getting to the heart of the matter. I lead a workshop called Climate and the Art of Storytelling. I start and end with this statement. In telling climate stories, truth is more important than facts. We can discuss and even debate the facts of climate change, but what does it all mean to us as individuals and as a society? What is the truth of the matter? In talking about climate stories, Elizabeth Rush agrees, truth is more important than fact. We don't need any more facts with climate change communication. We're sort of swimming in them. We need stories that help us latch onto and feel great empathy for those living on the front lines of climate change that help us imagine ourselves into their shoes. I think that's something that Cli-Fi does really well. So what does climate change mean for you? This is a question well worth spending time looking into. Let me share two listener responses to this question. Kay Kramer in central Pennsylvania, left the following voicemail. Hey, Tabitha. All these facts and figures can get a little old, but I heard the Green Party candidate for the U.S. Senate from Pennsylvania give this metaphor, which really resonated with me. Would you put your children and their families on a jet going to an unknown country where you didn't know if there would be basic food or other necessities where you didn't recognize the landscape or know whether there was political instability or social violence, whether there would be recognizable wildlife or plants, a country from which there was no return. That is a very possible scenario. It keeps me up at night and gives me the will to fight as hard as I can to stop the climate crisis. I'd love to talk to you more about the facts and figures if you want. Even more, it would be great, and I would love to have you join me and the many people across the world trying to make sure that this nightmare for the next generation doesn't happen. 
Kay's answer fits in well with our art house feature today when we talk about cli-fi. These stories can speculate about what the future might look like if we do not address climate change. Kay appeals to Tabitha to consider the inheritance we leave to children and grandchildren. In many ways, she's asking Tabitha, what do you want your legacy to be? She also invites Tabitha to get involved. Ken Lewis, in England, sent me an email with his answer to the question. I asked voiceover actor Robert Bowen to read Ken's answer. Well, Tabitha, what does climate change mean for me? Some of the best beer in the world is brewed in a location-dependent terroir in the Low Countries and particularly Belgium. Normally, you boil malted grains at 60 degrees Celsius for 30 to 45 minutes, add yeast, and leave to ferment for a number of hours. Additional hops can come later. The humidity and temperature for these legacy beer-producing methods put the hot and wet grains, called wort, in a shallow but wide and long vessel called a cool ship, under wooden rafters, so that wild yeasts can fall in and begin fermentation. The wort is put in huge barrels and left for one to three years, being blended when it's ready to play a part in a batch of beer. The wild yeasts are essential to the funky and sour flavors which are the hallmark of Gerser, Creek, and Lambic beers, and it's reckoned that the climate will make it inhospitable for these bugs to live in the air during the traditional October to March brewing window. These beers have at least 500 years of tradition. Our choices in doing nothing to swap from non-carbon fuel to renewable fuel sources or to counteract human-driven climate change will stop these beers from being something we can enjoy. Ken shares from his gut his love of beer. Yes, many wild species are threatened by climate change, but also some of our favorite foods. I can imagine Ken sitting in a pub with Tabitha enjoying a pint of beer. In that setting, among fellow beer lovers, I'm sure his concern for the future of beer would be heard loud and clear. Stories matter. Our stories can move people to think more deeply about climate change. Beyond the facts and figures, what does climate change mean for you? Well... Let me tell you a story. I'll tell you my story. I grew up in upstate New York in a working-class Italian-American Roman Catholic family. Now, there were always two things you can count on in the Toscano family every Sunday. Catholic Mass and a big bowl of pasta. Uh, Some years later, I actually had become a vegan where I ate no meat and no dairy. I sat around the table one Sunday dinner. The food kept getting passed by, and I just ignored it. I just carried on passing it by. The raviolis and the sausage and peppers and the meatballs. Finally, the broccoli came, and I loaded my plate up. My Aunt Rosalie was like, what's going on? Why aren't you eating anything? I said, oh, it's because I'm a vegan. She said, a vegan? What's a vegan? To which my mother jumped in, it's a pain in the ass. (laughs) So I grew up in this Italian-American immigrant family. And around 2012, it was a difficult time for my family. My dad was diagnosed with lung cancer, and he was dying. 
My mom had passed away six years earlier of the same cancer. So I was in a, a strange place going back and forth to visit my dad and doing what you do, right, when you're in that sort of a situation. In the midst of this, one day I came home to find my husband, Glenn, weeping in the bedroom. Now, Glenn is not a weeper. No, I'm the weeper in the family. We have a very clear division of labor. I weep, he comforts, but this was different. He's weeping, he's sobbing. I was like, Glenn, what's, what's going on? What's, what's, what's happening? I immediately thought of family. Glenn's family's from South Africa. That's where he grew up. His parents still live there. And I thought, oh no, maybe he heard bad news from home. And he says, it's about climate change. The IPCC had released its latest report and things were worse than they had imagined. And Glenn was overwhelmed, convicted, because here he is, a university professor teaching creative writing, and he was having this existential crisis. Like, how could I be teaching creative writing at a time like this? Now, one thing you need to understand about Glenn, he was part of the anti-apartheid struggle back in the early 90s when he was a university student. He's someone who knows there are issues where you need to put your life on the line, your body on the line. And he was beginning to see climate change as this kind of an issue, one that he can't ignore. But what could he do? And what could I do? Because I'm not really accustomed to the comforting in our family. So I did the best I could. I patted him on the back. I was like, there, there. It'll be okay. Or not. I don't know. We'll research. We'll we'll join a group. <laughs> I mean, what do you say when the person you love is is breaking down over an issue that you don't even begin to understand. Glenn is really great at doing research. And he used his researching skills to begin to learn about climate change and how we can respond. You know, in addition to changing our light bulbs and lowering our household carbon footprint, he realized we needed to get involved in some sort of collective action. And that's when he discovered Citizens Climate Lobby and the whole idea of putting a price on carbon. Glenn was sending me articles. I was reading my own articles, trying to learn a little bit more about climate change. And I confess that, well, it frightened me. It disturbed me. It hit me in the head. But it didn't hit me in the heart. It didn't hit me in the gut. It was this technical issue. It was an environmental issue. It was a scientific issue. But and the work that I did up until that point was very much around human rights and around stories. So I was going along for a couple months, reading articles, being more and more concerned, but not having that heart reaction. Until one day, when I read an article about drought. In this article, it said that with global warming, we're going to see more drought, more water is held up in the atmosphere. And as a result, that when it does rain, it will come down more and more in a deluge, which we're definitely seeing for sure. It says on a warmer planet, we're going to see longer, deeper, sustained droughts, leading to malnutrition, leading to starvation, leading to mass migration, leading to conflicts at borders and 
regional wars, things that we're actually already seeing right now. And it went on to talk about the real risks, the human rights risks of a planet with more drought. And and this got my attention because I was very much involved with human rights. It was a new way of looking at climate change, one that I hadn't seen before. In this article, it said on a warmer planet, we would see disruption in crops, including a potential global failure of wheat production, leading to a global shortage of pasta products. I was like, wait, 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 what just happened? What? (laughs) But pasta is an endangered species? And I can't even begin to tell you how shocked and how awakened I, I felt at that moment. And it seems, I know, incredibly shallow after reading, you know, so many articles about climate change. The thing that really shot me through the heart and in the gut was about the possible extinction of pasta, which I know sounds ridiculous. But, you know, that's how it works when it hits you close to home. It can really drive it home. And fortunately for me, I didn't just stick with mourning over pasta, but I began to look more and more into climate change. So much so that shortly after my dad, Pete Toscano, passed away, I decided to take a year off to study climate science and climate communication because I knew really nothing about it. So I did. I took some time and I realized that storytelling was so important and so lacking. Yes, there were people doing it, but but most of the presentations were still about the science of climate change and reacting to climate denial. And I realized that we needed more stories. this podcast, I think episode one or two, I shared uh, the following with you. It may be familiar to you in your own journey of getting involved with climate change, but I thought I'd share with you one more time the five stages of hot climate action. The first stage is when the penny drops and suddenly I realize just how serious climate change is. This is the freak out stage. It's weird, but my freakout voice sounds a lot like my dad. Holy guacamole, it's like the end of the world as we know it. Global warming is going to crush us. Drought, flood, pestilence, whatever that is. From the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream water, we're going to hell in a handbasket. After freaking out for a while, the pendulum swung a little to the other side as I toyed with denial. I I never came right out and denied climate change, but I toyed with it. And in my head, this is what denial sounded like. Yes, no, I am concerned about the climate change, of course, but uh, perhaps it won't be a catastrophe. Uh, Siberia could use some warming. I mean, we don't know everything yet. I read something somewhere. Maybe they will invent something. This could just be another Y2K. But I could not drive away reality. So the guilt and shame kicked in when I realized that I was part of the problem. 
In response, I attempted for a time to purge my life of all greenhouse gases. So I changed all my light bulbs. I bought the really expensive, super efficient ones. Then I stopped drying my clothes in the dryer. Well, I also couldn't afford to because of all those expensive light bulbs. And after this radical vegan activist with really bad breath screamed at me, I became a vegetarian for about a week. But then it happened. The despair descended upon me. I realized that my individual efforts were pathetic in light of the size of the problem. But what difference does it make? I purged myself dry. No one around me seems to care. And even if they did lower their own personal carbon footprints in the sand, it's like a teardrop in the ocean which is quickly acidifying. The very roads they built for us are soaked in fossil fuels. The whole infrastructure is out of my control. It's like the trials of Job. Just curse God and die. Yeah, in my head, despair sounds downright biblical. (laughs) But then something happened. I met like-minded people seeking solutions, and I found hope. We live in extraordinary times. So much uncertainty, dangers, and fears. But this is not our first rodeo. Our ancestors faced myriad challenges together. The Great Depression, World War II. They learned an important truth that we are discovering today. We are not alone. We have each other to comfort, to encourage, to join our voices together, and together, dear friends, we shall do the extraordinary. Now it is time for the Art House. In episode 26, I introduced you to Elizabeth Rush and her new book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. In addition to writing nonfiction about climate change and its effects, Elizabeth teaches creative writing and fiction at Brown University. The students taking Elizabeth's Cli-Fi course fell into one of two categories. Some studied humanities writing and literature. She also had budding scientists in the group. But a lot of them were interested, I think, in the class. Not so much because they loved cli-fi, but because they were scientists and they were interested in this new genre and how it was communicating science. And a lot of their friends and peers were reading cli-fi and they wanted to know more. She broke the semester into two halves, one looking at cli-fi stories about floods and the other focusing on droughts. And then the students both read leading papers in the world of the sciences that talk about ongoing drought in the American West or that talk about um, flooding in Hurricane Sandy. And so they actually read some of the science that's foundational to these imagined futures, and then they read the cli-fi versions of them. Then to synthesize what the students learned, they needed to create an artistic project based on a 1962 experimental French film. La Jetée. 
I mean, it's sort of like an art house science fiction film. In many ways, it was giving shape to anxieties around the potential nuclear holocaust. It's all still images, and it uses real photographs, some of them from things like the firebombing of Dresden, images from World War II, the destruction that World War II wrought. It intersplices those still images with still images of a set of actors, and there's a voiceover. The story that takes place is one where there's been this nuclear holocaust. A bunch of people end up living sort of in caverns and caves under Paris, under the city. And there are scientists that start running scientific experiments to try to get at least one person to be able to travel back in time and go back and change the world and stop the nuclear holocaust from happening. So my students' task over the course of the semester was to take real images of real environmental destruction. It's like a slideshow, and just those with images of themselves and their partner doing something and sort of creating a narrative from the images spliced together of them and their partner, then write a monologue over, you know, what is it, what's happened in the world that sort of caused much of humanity to disappear, and what are they doing about it? Elizabeth had students from two different disciplines in her class, science and humanities. She saw how the students' projects also differed. The more humanities-driven students were way more interested in the human story. They were way more interested in creating a compelling narrative arc. The science students were more interested in the veracity of the science behind the story. And um, I, tr- I thought that was just really fascinating. I think sometimes we need deeply collaborative efforts to produce something that is both has that narrative arc and has the science behind it. So what does Elizabeth recommend we check out? Number one, Gold Fame Citrus by Claire V. Watkins. I featured Claire in episode 22 of Citizens Climate Radio. What Elizabeth especially likes about Gold Fame Citrus is the language in it. It sort of like vibrates and has so much energy. I read passages from it out loud. Um, I think she has like a poet's ear. Yeah, they're cadent. There's like a beautiful cadence to her sentences. I also like that it sort of reverses the settler narrative that we have this sort of deep ingrained frontier narrative in the United States that's tied to Manifest Destiny and all of these um, projects of divesting indigenous people of their land. And in Gold Fame Citrus, you've got Californians fleeing the other way. I think that that's really fascinating. Book recommendation number two, 1004 by Ben Lerner. 1004 is in many ways barely speculative. It is about Hurricane Sandy and its arrival in New York City, but it's written in this really internal, quiet prose, the prose of a poet, I think. He lives sort of near Brooklyn College. He's teaching at Brooklyn College when Sandy washes ashore. A friend of his has asked him if he'll be a sperm donor for her. She doesn't have a partner, and she wants to have a baby. He 
deeply considers that question and considers that question in the context of this really damaging storm's arrival in New York City. But it's also a storm that doesn't fundamentally change his life, but it does change the lives of the students that he teaches. I like it because that felt like a very honest representation of the way that many of us sort of are thinking about climate change, but we don't exactly know where to place our anxieties. So it is a fiction, but I think it's a fiction that's very grounded in the present moment. And again, that's also beautifully written. That's 10.04, like the time, like it's 10.04 in the morning or 10.04 in the evening. I took Elizabeth up on her third recommendation and found it an engaging book It goes beyond the effects of climate change to look at society and the world of finance. Number three recommendation is Kim Stanley Robinson's New York 2140, as in the year 2140. Which is a drowned New York, or half-drowned New York. It's a really interesting introduction to commodity index trading and a lot of the financial instruments that led to the collapse of Wall Street in 2008. None of my students actually really knew anything about the financial recession. And I was like, wow, how is that possible? Of course, they were, I don't know, like 12 or 10 years old when it happened. It's a really interesting starting point, I think, to think about capitalism and the climate crisis together. Elizabeth has a source to share with you where you can learn about many more Cli-Fi books. There's an amazing, amazing woman named Amy Brady who does a newsletter called Burning World that's run through the Chicago Review of Books. And every month she interviews a cli-fi author and she does a roundup and a series of recommendations for cli-fi books that are coming out. I think she's a great reader and that's just a great starting place. It's like every month there's five new books for you to think about. Read the interview with the author, see who resonates with you and start from there. That source is Burning Worlds, a blog by Amy Brady and found at Chicago Review of Books. So what are the three recommendations Elizabeth has for us? Gold Fame Citrus by Claire V. Watkins, 1004 by Ben Lerner, and New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson. I have links to all of these books and to Elizabeth Rush's book, Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore. Just go to citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog to find our show notes. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Now it is time for our new puzzler question. This question is specifically for people of faith. You are at a place of worship, and you have some flyers about an upcoming climate change event. Lewis, someone you know from your faith community, asks, why are you involved in climate change work? You say, well, lots of reasons, but a big part is because of my faith. Lewis looks puzzled. He asks, climate change? What's faith got to do with climate change? So what do you say to Lewis? 
how is climate change connected to your faith or religion or spiritual practice? Send me your answers, leave your name, contact info, and where you are from. Get back to me by November 15, 2018. You can email your answers to radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. You can also leave me a voicemail of three minutes or less at 518-595-9414. Plus one if calling from outside the USA. That number again is 515-595-9414. We've come to the end of episode 29. Thank you for joining me today. The show is written and produced by me, Peterson Toscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt Monterano, Flannery Winchester, Allison Cabisco, and Steve Volk. Moral support from Madeline Para. All of the music we use on the show is licensed unless otherwise specified. You can find our program wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at northernspiritradio.org. Join the discussion at our Facebook group page. If you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Citizens C Radio. That's Citizens, the letter C, Radio. Citizens C Radio. Visit citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog to see info about our puzzler and find links to our guests. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. 